Good morning and welcome again to Trinity Heights Virtual Service. And this morning we are returning to our series which we've called Genesis a Prelude. And it's called a prelude because we're just looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which is a prelude to, well, the rest of the book, but also in a way, the rest of the Bible. So we're in our sixth message in this series. And so we arrive at Genesis chapter six, where we encounter Noah. Noah's Ark has to be one of the best known stories in the Bible. But we have mixed feelings about it. On the one hand, it makes for very colourful children's books, or it makes nice wallpaper in the nursery. We've all seen those pictures of boats full of smiling animals. On the other hand, we also think of it as a story about genocide. The time when a vengeful God decides to wipe out the human race. And this children's book slash account of genocide is also one of those stories surrounded by questions concerning its historical authenticity and scientific possibility. While some raise various scientific problems with the concept of a worldwide flood, others go off in search of Noah's Ark, which the account says landed on Mount Ararat in Armenia. Keeping in mind what we've already said in previous weeks about the type of literature Genesis 1 to 11 is, I can't help thinking that a lot of our questions about historicity and science are a bit of a distraction. But as this is a question that is asked over and over and over again, and, and often becomes a, a problem for contemporary readers who, who often can't get past these issues, they might be worth uh, quickly addressing. I, I want to provide here a couple of options uh, in terms of how we might go about reading this. Was it literally a worldwide flood? The language of the story may have been misread. The Hebrew word translated earth in the story is eres, and it doesn't mean the same thing as the English word. In fact, in three quarters of its occurrences in the Old Testament, eres is actually better translated by the word land, meaning a particular place or area, rather than being translated earth. Context has to be the guide. And so to reiterate, in 75% of cases, it is translated land, not earth. Also, there is a special Hebrew word for the whole inhabitable earth. Now, that word is tebel. And the key point here is that this, this word, which is, means for the whole inhabitable earth, is not used in the flood story. So try reading Genesis 6-9 with the word land replacing earth, and you'll see the different impression that you get. I'm going to flood the whole land, and the waters rose and covered the land. Of course, statements like, I'm going to put an end to all people, uh, in chapter 6 verse 13, might seem to demand a universal interpretation of the flood. However, it is a feature of Old Testament language to use apparently all-embracing phrases when they're not meant literally. For example, all the countries in Genesis 41 verse 57, which says that all the countries or world came to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere, could hardly include the Americas or China. 
Or another example is 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 10, which claims that King Ahab searched for Elijah in all the nations and the kingdoms. Hebrew speech is full of such exaggeration in order to make a point which is not intended to be taken literally. And so it is quite possible that the flood story uses such language throughout to stress the greatness of the catastrophe, but without meaning it literally. At most, it, it may mean that all the land and people known to them was inundated by the flood. The text of the Bible makes a local interpretation of the story quite possible. But in the end, I really don't think these sorts of questions are relevant to the text. No doubt there are various historical reminiscences of flood experiences which are, are deep in, in various cultural memories on which this account is based. And while I think the details of the historical events that lie behind these narratives are now lost to us and can't be recovered, that doesn't mean that there aren't general features of the historical context and historical background in which this narrative emerged that, that might actually inform our understanding of what this text is about, especially when we place it alongside other flood narratives. There's one flood narrative that is so similar to the biblical narrative that it's generally agreed that they originated in the same historical event. These are the flood stories from Mesopotamia. The best preserved is the Epic of Gilgamesh, and an even earlier version is found in the Epic of Atrasis. After the multiplication of humanity, a divine decision is taken to send a flood to destroy them. One man is told to save himself, his family, and some animals by building a boat. A great flood destroys the rest of humanity. The boat grounds on a mountain in southern Armenia. Three times birds are sent out to determine when the land is habitable. And the hero offers a sacrifice and is given a divine blessing. So undoubtedly, there's a common tradition of flood accounts. However, in Genesis, the flood narrative has been claimed to express the peculiar theological affirmations of Israel's faith. And it's in the differences between these accounts that the author's intent becomes really clear. In the Babylonian version, the flood is the focus and the flood is the result of the selfishness and the, the mere whim of the gods. The god Enlil gets irritated and a little touchy because there are so many humans who are so noisy that he can't get a good night's sleep. So he vows to destroy humanity in a flood. The gods all promise not to tell the humans what's about to happen, that the flood is coming. But one of the gods, Enki, breaks this promise and warns one of his devoted worshippers to build a boat and escape. Now, popular understandings of the Genesis flood account tend to focus on the flood and see it as an act of a vengeful God. Now, I think that that characterization fits very well with the Sumerian or Babylonian versions, but we'll have to abandon these popular understandings if we're to discern the very different agenda of the Genesis narrative. The focus of this text is not on a flood, but on a heavy, 
painful crisis in the dealings of God with creation. The crisis is not only about the world in jeopardy of a flood. The flood becomes a dramatic setting, the backdrop in which we are drawn into a crisis in the heart and person of God. The crisis begins with a God who is aware that something is deeply amiss in his creation. Chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination, some translations say every imagination, every inclination, every imagination of the thoughts of human hearts was only evil all of the time. Chapter 6, verse 11. Now the earth, or land, was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for God saw how people had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Wickedness, evil, corruption and violence. These are the words repeated and emphasised in these chapters to describe the human condition. We're only given one specific example of the wickedness, evil, corruption and violence. And it's right at the start of chapter 6, before any assessment is made or any judgment is passed on humanity. Essentially, what the author is doing, he's doing what becomes an established rule for creative writers. Show, don't tell. He wants to show us the human wickedness first before he tells us about it. And so it says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and married whomever they chose. Who were these sons of God who married the daughters of men? Many take them to be fallen angelic beings. But if that's the case, then how is this an example of human wickedness and human corruption when it's clearly an evil and violent act instigated by the alleged fallen angels who married whom they chose? If the purpose is to show us a specific example of, the hu of human corruption before telling us that this is in fact humanity's general condition, then this doesn't really work. But recent scholarship suggests that the background for this story is in fact the ritual prostitution that was connected with many of the fertility cults of the ancient Near East. The sons of God refers to the priests or kings who were supposed to represent the pagan god in sexual rites practiced in the worship of these fertility gods, often at their temples. This, I think, is a more compelling reading when we put it in its broader literary context of Genesis chapters 1 to 11, which is full of implicit attacks, as we've seen in previous weeks, implicit attacks on the pagan practices and ideas of the ancient Near East. And when we put it in the narrower context of this particular chapter, we see how it fits and serves the rest of the story. On this reading, we can see how the author is first allowing us as the readers to assess and judge the human condition for ourselves so that by the time we read God's assessment and God's judgment later on in the chapter, the reader has already got there 
and gone there in advance, we find ourselves already in agreement with God. We live in a culture which works extremely hard at generating a very different message. And in fact, the opposite message, a culture which tells itself that we are basically good and often establishes its own goodness by condemning and cancelling other people onto whom we have projected the evils of this world. So to take one random example, uh, you know our friend Eric Helvey, uh, one of his photographer friends who had managed to make a small fortune taking photos of his dog on different objects. Uh, he put his dog on a bicycle, a basketball hoop. Uh, the dog would just sort of balance itself quite happily on anything uh, while he took these photos. And he had this massive following on social media, apparently. Ended up having huge advertising contracts and publishing books with these photos, and he was very successful. Earlier this year, as the anti-racist protest started up, he tweeted out his support for what was going on and expressed his own anti-racist sentiments. But he forgot to put BLM on his post, and so people started trolling him and deleting him, and he's lost his contracts, and now that income has dried up, and he has to go and sell his house and move. Look, from a financial perspective... It's no big deal, right? Easy come, easy go. But this is just one small example of how we do this culturally, how we do this collectively, of how we project evil onto other people as a way of establishing our own goodness, our own righteousness. This is all an elaborate attempt at deceiving ourselves into thinking that yeah, we're basically good. Freud has observed our infinite capacity for self-deception. But long before Freud came along, we had this incredible ancient text, which provides what Walter Brueggemann calls an island of candor in a flood of self-deception. I like that. An island of candor in a flood of self-deception, he says. We're all involved and we're all implicated. In a culture which is so desperate to deceive itself into believing in its own goodness and establishes its own righteousness, often by condemning someone else, Genesis allows us to see the human imagination as it actually is. This is a space where we can drop those masks and quit pretending. It's exhausting convincing the world that we are good, it's even harder trying to convince ourselves. I think that if we're really going to immerse ourselves in this story, if the biblical narrative is the one which we inhabit, then the community shaped by this story should be an island, an island of candor in a flood of self-deception. I wonder if we can be a community like that? Can we be an island of candor in a flood of self-deception? So through Genesis, we see that humanity is sort of tilted against God's purposes, 
God's world with its own perverted imagination and daydreams has begun to conjure its own future against the future willed by God so that God's own dream for his creation has no prospect of fulfillment. And with this amazing boldness, the text invites the community to enter the heart of God. And what we find there is not an angry tyrant, but a troubled parent who grieves over the alienation. Verse 6 shows the deep pathos of God. God is not angered, but grieved. He's not enraged, but saddened. God does not stand over against his creation, but with his creation. In fact, the same word that is used to describe the pain a woman will experience in childbirth in, in, back in chapter 3, that same word is the same word used to describe the pain that God now feels. Because he is a God who takes with uncompromising seriousness his purpose for creation, for humanity. What distinguishes God in this passage from every other God and from every other creature is God's deep grief. And so Noah and his family and the animals enter the ark and it says, and the Lord shut him in and the floods came and the waters rose. And you know the story. Eventually the waters recede enough for a dove to bring back an olive branch in its beak. The first sign that the earth will be inhabitable again. Has the flood affected a change in humanity? No. In chapter 8, verse 21, God still sees that every inclination of humanity is evil from childhood. Chapter 9, verse 6, he's making provisions for further violence. Whoever sheds human blood by humans will have his blood shed for in the image of God, God has made man then what hope is there? Well, the flood has not wrought a change in humanity, but it has affected an irreversible change on the part of God. The relationship is not simply strong God and needy world, but it is a tortured relationship between a grieved God and a resistant world. But God's commitment to his creation is intensified here in this story. It, it's marked now by grief and the hurt of betrayal. And we realize perhaps for the first time that any commitment to creation is going to be a costly commitment. But God's grief moves him to embrace humanity in a new way. God resolves that he will stay with the world he will endure the world. He will sustain the world. He will not let the rebellion of humankind sway him from his grand dream for creation. And in the self-abandoning God comes the basis for a new world. And in these chapters, we catch the first glimpse of the gospel, the good news. Our first glimpse of the good news of Jesus Christ that God does not stand outside of the herd of this world as a judge, 
stands with us. How can we assure the world around us that God has not abandoned his world, but is in fact deeply committed to this world? If this encounter affects a change in God, can we let this story affect a change in us? I think we have an amazing opportunity in the climate and culture we live in to present something starkly different, that people are being demonised and cancelled and kicked out of the club all the time. And it's being done by people who are completely dishonest about their own complicity with utter evil. I can give you any number of examples. The, the NBA, Nike, Hollywood, Disney, they're, they're all very woke and claim to be for diversity and women's rights. But when a coach from the NBA expresses support for Hong Kong democracy, players who have a lucrative Chinese contract shut him down as ignorant and express their support for the Chinese regime. Nike have their stuff manufactured in factories using Uyghurs who have been taken from their concentration camps to the factories as slave labour. And the end credits for Mulan, as many of you know, actually thanks the Chinese Public Security Bureau, which is overseeing the internment of a million Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps and have overseen mass forced sterilization of Muslim women, removing their wombs and organ harvesting of Muslim prisoners. These people cover up their own participation in evil by condemning others for not being woke enough. The amazing thing about inhabiting this particular story is that we must become candid about our own wrongness. And this candidness will not allow us to demonise and judge each other and abandon each other and then cancel each other out on those grounds. So one way that we can affirm that God has not abandoned us is by acting this out ourselves. So how about it? How about we actually get to know those people who disagree with us or perhaps hold views we find just repugnant? How about we seek those people out and pursue them, emulating the God who refuses to abandon us, who in order to move forward with the creation in rebellion against him, has refused to cancel us and instead commits himself to our well-being. Can we be like this self-abandoning God so that this broken world and, and broken people around us will discover, perhaps for the first time, that the living God has not abandoned them. Amen.